We're going to do something a little different today. We've been, over the course of the summer, doing this series, a faith and science series. And uh, during the month of July, we spent a lot of time kind of looking at origins and creation and some different approaches uh, to those passages in Scripture. This month, we've been tackling some more modern uh, contemporary issues that when it comes to integrating faith and science and what does that look like and how are some of the people that are immersed in these fields uh, in different ways balancing that or, or even seeing how it informs one another. Uh, this week, next week is actually going to be our last week. I'm going to wrap it up. We'll see what happens. Uh, some of that will be shaped by how today goes. Uh, but today we have a panel discussion. So my goal today is to not weigh in with my opinions uh, just more of to control this rowdy bunch and uh, hopefully give it a little direction. But I've asked uh, four people to come share with us today. And what I told them is uh, I wanted each of them to come prepared with some thoughts to share about uh, from different perspectives how areas of faith and science that they've wrestled with or maybe personal experiences or maybe something that they see kind of coming down the pike that Christians uh, need to, at some point, you're probably going to start wondering about, and how does this affect my faith, or how do, what does Scripture say about this subject? And so I kind of gave them a lot of latitude of where they kind of felt most comfortable to want to come and uh, share from that. And then, depending on time, at the end of the hour, we have a few questions for them. Last Sunday, uh, if you were here, uh, you'll remember Pastor Nate in the first hour, and myself in the second hour, uh, asked you guys to fill out cards with questions, any, any questions that you might have had uh, for the panel this week. And part of the goal behind that was I didn't want to ambush them on the spot because these are uh, a lot of its heavy topics. And so I wanted them to be able to have a thoughtful uh, response to it that they've kind of prayed through or thought through. And so uh, I collected all those questions, which were way more than we could ever tackle over the course of the summer. And uh, we highlighted a few that, depending on how we're doing for time at the end of the hour, uh, we'll dive into a few of those, and, uh, and then afterwards, I'm sure you are able to grab them and corner them and, and ask some follow-up questions or, or grill them, but uh, let me uh, let you know a little bit about our panel. Um, I don't know if you've met this guy before, uh, Pastor Todd Johnson. <laughs> uh, he's one of our uh, pastors here. You guys know that. Um, he has his bachelor's degree is in the Bible. His master's degree is in counseling. He's currently working on a Master of Arts in Teaching. He has 15 years of pastoral experience, 13 uh, at a church in Colorado, and now two here at Brandywine. I asked him to be a part of this panel because I wanted kind of a, what's a pastoral response to some of these topics that churches really find divisive and wrestle through? And so I'm excited to hear what he's going to share. Dr. Herb Schrock, who's married to Laurel. She's in the back. Uh, He's also the father of my wife. Uh, and how I heard of this church. We were, uh, he got his Bachelor of Science at Penn State, his PhD in biophysical chemistry from the University of Illinois, uh, his biochemistry NIH postdoctoral fellow from Cornell. Uh, he worked in uh, DuPont's and AstraZeneca for 35 years in pharmaceutical development. There is a strong chance that you have had a prescription or a family member has had a prescription that he was a part of developing. <laughs> Every once in a while, he'll take something and be like, oh, yeah, no, I, I, I helped make that. And I'm like, so are we okay? Is this? <laughs> uh, Steve Taylor, uh, some of you probably know him. He's married to Tina. Uh, they have two adult children, Nick and, uh, Nick and Abby. Um, he is a chemical engineer at the Comores company, and before that, he was with DuPont for a total of 35 years between the two. His title is Comores Fellow, which, uh, if you don't know, that's the highest technology level. In 2014, he was a a DuPont Lavoisier medalist, which he's fairly quiet about, but his son was like, no, 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 McNutt, that's a big deal. Um, (laughs) He's been a part of this church for 18 years. He's been on the personnel committee. He uh, was part of the search committee that found Pastor Nate. Uh, He's been uh, an adult Christian ed teacher for the last 11 years. He's also served uh, with our usher team for 13 years. Uh, Brian Christinger 
is married to Elizabeth. You might have known them from some of the different classes here. They have three kids, uh, Noah, Micah, and Hannah. His bachelor's is in mathematics from Messiah College. His master of science is in statistics from Penn State. Uh, he worked for uh, two years as a data analyst at Hershey Medical Center. For the last 18 years, he's been teaching uh, statistics at the University of Delaware. Uh, he spent 10 years as a reader table leader for AP Statistics, and his involvement at Brandywine has been since 2001 in the worship choir, the Jubilate Deo, the boys, uh, an Awana leader, and also a part of our deacon board. Can we give a warm welcome to our panel members? Todd and I are used to being in front of large crowds of people, but it's always kind of an intimidating thing uh, when we ask people to get up, especially in front of people they know. Uh, but what I've, I, like I said, I've asked each of them to kind of share a few thoughts that they have put together. And so we're going to start with uh, Pastor Todd. Yeah. Thank you guys for being here. All right. So when uh, Matthew asked me to be on this panel um, of how to reconcile faith and science, like what's the relationship in between? My mind immediately leapt to the man that you've been staring at, probably wondering who he is, on the screen, John Polkinghorne. Um, I became aware of him when I was in college. Um, Our university had, in its school bookstore, books that our professors would sell. So, like, they had books. Then they also had books because professors have too many books. You know, um, they are sometimes convinced by their spouses that they need to sell some of those books. And so uh, the students benefited from that. And one of the books that I, I, I bought was a book by John Polkinghorne um, and just kind of devoured that. And really, uh, I was interested in um, his mind, how it worked, and, and introduced to some of the new ideas that I really hadn't been introduced to before. Um, but he is an English theoretical physicist and theologian, um, writer and Anglican priest. Um, a prominent and leading voice explaining the relationship between science and religion. He is professor of mathematics and physics at Cambridge University from 1968 to 79, when he resigned his chair to study for the priesthood, becoming an ordained Anglican priest in 1982. He served as the president of Queens College, Cambridge, from 88 to 96. And so uh, his published works include, these are just a few, The Quantum World, um, in uh, 89 he wrote that, uh, Quantum Physics and Theology, An Unexpected Kinship, in 2005, um, Exploring the Reality, the Intertwining of Science and Religion, in 2007, and Questions and Truth, in 09. And so he has an interesting um, just background from the standpoint that he has a very, very high science and mathematics background, but then he kind of left that world um, to pursue um, a life as a priest in the Anglican Church. Um, one of the things that I think that Polkinghorne, as you uh, maybe leave this lecture, because we don't have time to fully go into all the things that he um, has written and has thought about, but he's one of many, many uh, voices out there that really does a good job of, of helping us to think about the scriptures really, really well, um, to honor them, to hold them in high regard, but then also how to, to intertwine that um, with, with the science. So I want to share a couple quotes from him um, from a a short pamphlet that he wrote a a little while ago. Um, In in the middle of sandwiched in between that is a pretty good illustration as well as what we're going to do this morning. So the first quote from him in in a little pamphlet that he wrote called Traffic in Truth is that misunderstanding of the nature of the Bible has led some Christians to believe that it contains all necessary truth about pretty well everything. When modern scientific insight differs from this picture, as it mostly does in detail, then the science must be manipulated and made to conform. Um, This is one of the big missteps that I see Christians make often. Uh, Reading the Bible as if it is a science book. It it is not a science book. Um, And while the Bible has all truth for faith and practice, it doesn't have everything that is true in it, right? So you can't learn how to perform open-heart surgery by reading the Bible, right? We all agree with that? You can't figure out how to put a satellite in the space by reading the Bible, right? So we understand that there, the Bible is truth, but there are truths that lie outside of it. And I think that this quote is kind of highlighting the fact that sometimes we are prone to make misstep, missteps um, in our theology by reading the Bible like it is a science book. One of the greatest examples of this um, from uh, years gone by is the Copernican Revolution. And many of you probably know about this, but for those of you who don't, 
In February and March 1616, the Catholic Church issued a prohibition against the Copernican theory of the Earth's motion. Right? So at this time, before this time, everybody thought that the Earth was the center of the universe, right? And not only did they think that the Earth was the center of the universe, they also believed that the Bible taught that the Earth was the center of the universe. Any, anybody think that the Earth's the center of the universe today? Now, we, we kind of know that it's not, right? Um, this led to later in 1633 to the Inquisition trial and condemnation of Galileo Galilei as a suspected heretic which generated a controversy that continues to our day. And so here we have a picture of Galileo standing before his accusers. In February, March of 1615, one Dominican friar filed a written complaint against Galileo, and another one testified in person in front of the Roman Inquisition. They accused Galileo of heresy for, believing in Earth's, for his beliefs in Earth, Earth's motion, which contradicted scripture, they believed. And one of the things they cited was Joshua 10, where we know the sun stood still. As, you know, Israelites are battling the Amorites. The sun stands still. They're able to, to uh, vanquish uh, their, their, their enemies. Um, this was attributed as a miracle of God. And they believed that his idea that the earth was not the center of the universe, that the earth actually rotated around the sun, contradicted Joshua 10. Well, we obviously know that that's not true. We know that their understanding of science was incorrect um, because they were trying to read the Bible as a science book, um, and that's not really what the purpose of it was. And so while this example seems obvious to us, and we're like, I can't believe they thought that. I can't believe they almost killed Galileo because of this. He was actually convicted of suspicion of heresy. If he had actually been convicted of heresy, he would have been burned alive, right? So they almost burned a guy alive for figuring out one of the, now we feel, most basic truths about our existence. Um, And I feel that a lot of us might have been those accusing fingers if we had been alive back then. We'd be like, well, obviously the Bible says that the earth is the center of the universe. Everybody knows that, right? Um, When obviously that, that didn't end up being true. One of the things that this causes me to do then is that where am I misstepping in this way as I, as I approach Scripture, as I approach God's Word? How, how am I oftentimes not looking at it um, correctly, right? Um, not using the Bible as it's intended, but using it uh, beyond the borders of what it is meant to do. Um, and the last quote that I'll share from Polkinghorne that kind of brings these ideas together is this one. Science is asking how questions. And theology is asking why questions. Science will tell theology what the scripture and the history of the physical world are like. Theology will gratefully acknowledge these gifts and seek to set them within the more profound and comprehensive setting that belief in God affords. And so what Polkinghorne's trying to say is that science and faith, they actually work together, and it's all God. One of the things that I think that some some Christians, not obviously not all, uh, make is that they feel that science is the realm of man and that theology is the realm of God. It's all God. <laughs> God created the science. God created the, the, you know, not only the how, but the why. He created, he's the God of, of both of those. And I think as we, as we approach it that way and we think about it that way, um, aren't afraid of, of scientific advancement and understanding, um, but really kind of look at it through a biblical lens, um, which is what we need to do, um, we will honor God uh, by, by doing that. So um, those are some perspectives of John Polkinghorne. If you have not uh, heard of him before, I would encourage you to pick up a book. He has many of them. He has lectures online on YouTube, uh, a great uh, man of God um, who straddles both of these complex worlds very, very well, um, very, very astutely. And yeah, that's what I had to share. Thank you, Pastor Todd. Uh, Brian, do you want to go next? We're going to start at the opposite end because Todd's going to swap out some of the PowerPoints in a moment. Yeah, sure. Um, Can everyone hear me if I talk this way? Oh, you're recording it? Yes. Got it. So I'm, I'm used to talking in a room that's probably five times this size, so, but it's got to get on tape, so I'll do this. So welcome. Um, thanks for having me uh, this morning. L- just like to really quickly share, and this usually takes me about 20 minutes if I do it in class. I'm going to try to um, speed it up a bit. But a, a story about our, f- our oldest son, Noah. So we were at uh, his first sonogram, 
and we chose not to know that Noah was a he, uh, so we didn't know it was Noah at that point. Um, and uh, everything seemed to go okay, and then the doctor came in at the very end to kind of wrap things up with us, and he said, you know, just wanted to share with you that we found some spots on Noah's brain, uh, just white spots, and, you know, that doesn't sound good as a parent, especially for your first child. And uh, he said, these could be indicators of uh, trisomy 18. I didn't know what that was. My wife did. She went as white as a sheet. And if you know what it is, you, you probably know why. It's a serious genetic condition. Babies, if they're born alive at all, they don't live past their first birthday often. Um, just to give you some perspective, um, Down syndrome, I believe, is trisomy 21, so which chromosome is affected. So this is the 18th chromosome. And so when we got home, she shared this with me. And, oh, my goodness. Uh, what are we going to do? And to make matters worse, and, you know, as, as a family of faith, we didn't really have any question about what do we do. But the doctor didn't come out right and said it, but seemed to imply that we had some options at that point which, of course, we, you know, as our family, we did not have any options at that point, you know, proceed as, as we would have had we not learned this. But, <clears throat> but the, the doctor said, you know, well, this, this isn't a diagnosis. If you want a diagnosis, we could do an amniocentesis, which is a bit um, invasive, as you know. But there's an alternative if you want to dig around in this a little bit more. It's a mother's blood test, a genetic test uh, for trisomy 18, just take a, a blood draw from mom. And so we decided to go through with that. And uh, some of the numbers that they gave, so I'm a statistician, I'm a numbers person. So here, here's some of the numbers. You ready? You can even get your calculators out. This is going to be interactive. Um, so pull them out. Uh, so based on the spots, the risk for a baby having trisomy 18 is 1 in 300. Okay? The genetic test has a sensitivity of 99%. What does that mean? it'll identify 99% of trisomy 18 cases, okay? And a specificity of 97.6%. So that means the test will identify 97.6% of non-cases, okay? Sounds pretty accurate, doesn't it? So what did we want to know? Well, what if this test comes back positive, right? Well, it's a done deal, right, almost? Let... let <laughs> Let's investigate, shall we? All right, so get your calculators out. And I'll try to do this one-handed uh, with this marker. Put this here. Okay, so would you believe that it's not even close to a 90% chance if the test comes back positive that the baby has trisomy 18? Do you believe that? It's not magic. All right, so let, let's dig around at it. Uh, I have to give credit for this little analysis to my grad school teacher. Um, it, and you don't need to know anything about statistics for this, just how to multiply and divide and add and subtract. Okay? So let's imagine a group of 300,000 babies. And if the, you know, with, with this ultrasound observation, so one out of 300 of those would have trisomy 18. So how many is that? Hey, you guys are awake this morning. Nice. So 1,000 babies would have trisomy 18 out of those. So how many would not? Hey, yeah, we can subtract. Okay. So now let's use the sensitivity and specificity numbers. So 99% of babies with trisomy 18 would identify as, would come out as a positive test result. Okay. So of those babies with trisomy 18... How many would test positive? 990. How many would test negative? <clears throat> 10. Okay. And then the other piece that the doctor didn't quote us, which I knew I needed for, to explain this to my wife, was the specificity of the test, the, the performance in the other group. So 97.6% uh, of babies without trisomy 18 test negative. How many is that? So of the babies that don't have trisomy 18, how many would give a negative test result? You might need your calculator for this one. Ninety-seven point six percent of the two hundred ninety-nine thousand. 
you've got your cell phones. Come on, you can do this. I'm not going to tell you the answer. Thank you. 291,824. And then how many of those babies would, would test positive? The rest, yep. <laughs> and you got the idea. Good, 7,176. Okay. So then let's add in these directions um, total number of negative test results and the total number of positive test results. Are you starting to see what's happening here? The performance of the test is based on these numbers. The answer to a a mother's and father's question is based on these. It's all about the denominator. And I don't think a lot of folks understand that. So if you have a positive test result of these, what are the chances that the baby actually has trisomy 18? How How do you figure that? Well, you take this number out of that number, right? So what's 990 out of 8,166? That's your 12%. Okay? 990 out of 8,166. Now, why, why is that happening? Why is it so low? Well, it's because the test isn't perfect. And that's one of the points I want to make this morning. Um, you know, even for a super accurate test like this, probably the best we've got. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. And couple that with the fact that the disease is very rare. So there's a lot of non-cases. And even a small percentage of wrong test results in a big group of non-cases is going to give you a large number of false positives compared to the true positives. I can hear a pin drop when I give this example in my class. I don't have to go into abortion. I don't have to mention how many how many babies have been killed on a false positive test result. They get it. So one of the things I just want to leave you with this morning is, you know, at least from a data perspective, a medical diagnostic test, it's not perfect. and, and often the scientific method, especially in a data context, I, I can't really speak in other areas, I'm not a, an expert there, but especially in a data context, it's, it, there's uncertainty there. And often that uncertainty is not quantified for us or quantified correctly. You know, a lot of us would, would see the 99, the 97.6. Those are our uncertainty numbers that we think about. Well, that's not much uncertainty. Well, that's the wrong uncertainty number. And and we often don't know enough. I I don't know enough. I I just know the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that I don't know. And and I think we have to bring to, especially results like this, perhaps scientific results in general, we've got to bring a sense of humility to it. We don't know. Um, Just to maybe um, underline that, I was doing just some digging about um, astrophysics. I, I'm interested in it. I dabble in it a little bit. I'm not an expert. But uh, the current state of astrophysics is such that uh, 95% of the known universe is made up of things called dark matter and dark energy. Some of you might have heard about this. You know, that's, that's even worse than living on Earth and not knowing what water is. You know, we, we don't know a lot. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. It, it, you, you, are, you are right. You know, there's the, the great potential for abuse. Um, and, I, you know, I think this is a great example of, you know, if, if you're just looking at the surface numbers, you get, you get the wrong conclusion. So yeah, I don't know if that's true, but I think it underlines the point that, you know, uncertainty has to be quantified and has to be quantified correctly. There are a lot of assumptions that often go unmentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the more I learn, the more I realize yeah, I, I don't know a lot.
I love that already between the first two, it's we need to be humble in how we approach faith, and we need to be humble in how we approach our science. And arrogance is dangerous in either. Steve. Oh. Noah is fine. As many of you know. Uh, well, thank you. I'm not sure I'm the right person to even be on this panel. I know there's a lot of people in this room who are uh, very much qualified to, to do this, uh, this same panelist thing. Two things um, I wanted to bring up. You know, uh, Todd, you mentioned about the center of the universe. If you've been a parent, you know what the center of the universe is. It's that first child, right? Center of your universe forever. Uh, and another thing, I think you heard it from Dr. Bradstreet. Uh, you know, we've been blessed by God with two books, right? One is, you know, our Bible, you know, the Word of God. And what was the other one? Anybody remember? Yeah, the book of nature, right? And most of us, uh, our livelihoods are based on that book, right? The book of nature, for sure. I mean, that's where we draw our income. You know, most of us are in fields that involve science, engineering, biology, whatever. So we need to thank God for that other book. And it's an exciting book because we don't know it all. As, As Brian said, there's so much we don't know, and that's kind of what I was going to lead into. Uh, most of us have probably been, probably have been raised in a, you know, uh, a church of some sort uh, through our life. And how many people uh, were told that you, know, you needed to believe you know, literally everything in the Bible as you read it? Everything. You know, a lot of people, right? So I grew up in a home like that. It was uh, you know, the six-day creation story. You, know, you needed to believe that as it was, was written. Um, how many believe that? I, I better not ask that question, right? Throw, throw the grenade in the room. Uh, you know, but based, and that's been the struggle for me. Uh, you know, I actually had family members, uh, not my immediate family, but within our family who, who uh, actually, you know, worked uh, to develop, you know, if you will, uh, training materials to, to drive that, uh, that message, you know, the six-day creation. So I very much was confused in a lot of ways when you went off to school. Right, you, and you learn about you know all the scientific evidence that shows uh, you know it's very much contrary to that. So what do you, what do you do with that? Uh, you know how do you manage that? How do you you know how do you deal with it? And particularly when you're not really getting another message from your family, right? It's this way or it's no way, right? Um, and this is the only way. So you know I've, I've had to deal with that. I think um, uh, Matt uh, Matthew just asked us, you know, what have we had to wrestle with in our life? And I think that's been a big area for me. Uh, and I will say the end of the story, I'll just give you the summary. I mean, it really comes down to faith, right? It comes down to faith, believe what we believe. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you have to have faith uh, to believe a lot of other things. You know, you can believe uh, the six-day creation story, and, and I'm not going to say that's necessarily wrong. And the reason I'll say that is because God is great, right? He can do whatever he wants to do, Period. So in some ways, I'm agnostic, but I also can't deny the evidence. It's there, right? If you, carbon dating's there, everything that shows. And I, I can't believe God would be what I call a trickster, right? So it probably is, uh, in my belief, probably more uh, likely it's, uh, you, know, you know, millions of, of years or billions of years. So I wanted to bring up, too, uh, some other points. You know, what else is in the Bible that we, we say we believe? And... and, and Really, creation's prehistory, right? A lot of prehistory. How many people actually, I mean, even when uh, that message was given to Moses, he didn't see it, right? So God gave him that message. So it's really prehistory. But let's talk about history. So when you talk about history, you know, some of these stories involve, what, the flood? So where did all that water come from? And where did it all go? You know, in fact, if the world was flooded, where did it go? Right? So if it was a complete, total flood of the earth. The parting of the Red Sea, how did that water stand up like that? How did it split open? I'll give you the answer in a minute. I mean, I'm not... <laughs> uh, you know, so we talked about uh, uh, Joshua 10, right? Pretty significant. Did you know what would happen to you if the earth stopped suddenly? Does anybody have any idea? What would happen? You'd fly off the earth. You'd fly off the earth at about 1,000 miles uh, an hour for sure. Because that's, that's how fast the earth is spinning at the surface, right? So if, if the sun stood still for a day, as we believe, you'd be, uh, you'd be tossed out. What about the 
Another one is even more astonishing, right? It's the story of Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah asked for a sign, and what did uh, Isaiah pray to God? And uh, the sign was, spin the earth back for a little while, right? So the shadow went up the steps, what, like 10, 10 steps? Yeah, it was effectively their sundial. Right. The clock moved backwards. So this is all history, right? We're talking about history. The virgin birth and resurrection of Lazarus after four days. We believe that, right? And uh, the one I like, I call it the Star Trek-like transport of Philip out of uh, (laughs) Acts chapter 8, right? He was talking to the eunuch. What happened? The Bible says the Spirit of God, what? Just took him. We believe that, right? Okay, good. <laughs> That's good. Well, I hope so. We're all here. Um, and, uh, you know, another one, just, just a kind of curiosity, right, when, when Balaam uh, was, was, uh, was hired more or less to kind of curse the Israelites, right? Who, who talked to Balaam that day? Donkey. We believe that, right? So how is that? How is that all possible? I've been trained uh, in, in chemistry and engineering of all sorts. I rely, really, we, you, you, you should be very glad we rely on Newtonian physics. It's very constant and consistent. That's the only reason this building still stands or the bridges you cross stand. We need to be very thankful for the consistency of the laws. Uh, so I've wrestled with a lot of this. and I, you know, it's, it's really kind of at odds when you read these stories. It's at odds with what we know. As Brian said, we don't know everything, do we? There's a lot we don't know. And I think I've come to, come to believe we're, we're pretty ignorant still. We think we're pretty smart, but we're really not. There's a lot that God still has to show us in that book of nature. And, you know, you need to keep that, uh, that uh, open mind. So I, eventually it all comes down to our faith, right? And I go back to um, a passage in Colossians, which is really important. I think, for everything we're talking about right now. And it deals with, um, you know, Paul talks and he says, uh, you know, really, God created all the laws that govern our universe, right? He created them. So guess who can change them? God. He created them. He can change them. And he, he goes on, he says, you know, he has total control over his creation because it is held together by whom? God. So when that water stood up, when that Red Sea was split, guess who held up all those atoms? It was God. So keep that in mind. So ultimately, everything we know about miracles and why they're reality is because of, of he controls it all. So that's what I have. So thank you. You can just hold on to it. All right. Herb. Todd's about to kick yeah, on Todd's some slides for him. Is this on? Yes. Todd's going to click on uh, my slides. I actually had four pages of introductory comments, <laughs> but Pastor Todd told me I would not have time for it. So I'm going to go through my 17 slides as quickly as I can. Okay? There are really 17 slides. Please hold questions until later, because if there's enough time... Uh, you don't have enough hands. That's right. <laughs> If there's, a, if there's enough time at the end, we can dig into some of these questions earlier. Basically, following up on the confession that we don't know very much, I wanted to talk a little bit about a very powerful technology that's overwhelming our ability to manage our own genes. It's CRISPR technology, and it's technology to modify genes. And again, I'm going to go through this quickly, but save questions until the end if we have time. Basically, let's see, where do I point this? Anywhere. Am I pointing the right one? Yeah. Uh oh. Oh, there we are. And I hope I only get to say this once this time and once next hour. CRISPR is actually an acronym for clustered, regularly interspersed, short palindromics repeats. That's all you're going to know about the technology. I can try to answer questions if you have them, but not right now. CRISPR systems deploy tiny scissors to snip any genetic code in a targeted place 
and potentially insert a new genetic code. Theoretically, it cut out bad DNA and replace it with good DNA. And I just made a little sentence example to follow up very quickly. Am I pressing the wrong button? <laughs> oh, here. Ah, there's been a typo, a mistake in this transcription. Brash your teeth every day. Well, a good editor can take out that A and put it in a U, just as CRISPR can take out a bad misspelling in DNA and replace it with... Is, Why don't I sit back there and yeah. hit the button? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the battery might be short. Uh, hit it. <laughs> so he can replace it with a U. Brush your teeth every day. Now, a good advertising executive can add additional information, too, that just like a genetic engineer can add additional DNA to any strand of DNA, and you get the next Brush your teeth every day with a toothpaste that will simultaneously fight cavities, strengthen your enamel, whiten your teeth, freshen your breath, and grow hair. Well, maybe not pure baldness. So, next slide. Researchers around the world are actively trying to identify harmful gene mutations and to modify them in a beneficial way. Elaine Petty actually gave a personal example last week where that has been effective in one of her friends. As of August 2018, the FDA has received more than 700 applications for gene therapy trials. Many of these trials are utilizing CRISPR technology. And in the year since then, the 12 months since then, you can bet hundreds more have applied to do gene therapy studies. Next slide. From another perspective, there are several companies now that will analyze your DNA and provide you with an assessment. I like this. Your statistical risk... <laughs> Statistical risk for various diseases, including diabetes and Alzheimer's. And I actually, I actually didn't even know about this until I saw it on a TV commercial. And then I was preparing this talk, and I walked into Walgreens to pick up a prescription, and darn, if 23andMe wasn't right there in front of me, in front of the pharmacist. So this is a very simple kit. You can take some DNA, send it away, and they're going to tell you the probability of having, the statistical probability of having whatever problem in your genes. So keep that in mind, what Brian said. Next slide. While using CRISPR technologies for alleviation of pain and suffering associated with diseases caused by genetic defects may be beneficial, the potential for abuse is also present. It'll be important for society to understand the risks of manipulating our own and potentially our children's genes so that abuses can be minimized. Next slide. Christians should become aware. This is an opinion on my part. Christians should become aware of the benefits and risks of gene manipulation so that we can influence policy decisions related to the regulation of applications of CRISPR and other technologies. We need to balance our desire to heal the sick against the ever-present temptation to place humanity in control of our destiny. How can we apply God's values as expressed in Scripture and in his creation, the book of nature, to this discussion? I don't have the answers. But there are some important questions that will need to be addressed. Next slide. Should there be limits on the application of genetic technologies to treat or eliminate diseases? If so, what should they be? Should people have full access to information about their own and their potential future children's genetic makeup, or should this access be limited? If limited, what should the restrictions be and why? And what do we tell insurance companies about our, our DNA? Next slide. It's more, more difficult questions. Should parents be allowed unlimited freedom to select from among their natural embryos during in vitro fertilization using genetic analysis of each embryo before implantation to minimize the risk of a genetic disease. If we have time, the next three questions in the Q&A at the end, I have a lot more information on this kind of topic. If it's proven safe, should precision gene editing be used to eliminate genetic diseases in in vitro fertilized human embryos 
prior to implantation in a manner that would be passed on to future generations? These are real questions people are dealing with right now. Next slide. Even more difficult question. Should parents be allowed to select embryos based on non-disease traits like height, projected IQ, personality style, etc.? as research begin to identify genetic sequences associated with these traits. Now, we're a long ways from being able to do that with any sort of precision, not anywhere close to the precision of the, of the tests that you spoke about. But it's going to happen as we analyze more and more genetic sequences over larger and larger populations. We're going to be able to understand these things better and better over time, and it won't take long. Next slide. Scientific discoveries are being made in every area at an ever-increasing rate. And again, I suggest that Christians should be aware of the important questions that arise from this and be able to offer perspectives that glorify God and dignify his creation, including humanity. I, I propose that Christians should be aware of this to the point that they can share it with their children, their grandchildren, with their friends, their neighbors, and policymakers that they come in contact with. Because we have some things to offer to this conversation. And we need to step up and do that, which means we need to become more informed. Now, there's a number of books that I can <coughs> reference with you if we want to talk about it afterwards again. But next slide. Some of the suggestions that Elaine Petty talked about last week, which I found incredibly valuable because I had no way of approaching the questions that I was asking but she had a context already designed. So I'm shamelessly giving her credit and copying what she had to say. When you're talking with somebody about these issues, watch for things on how they're presented. What is their underlying rationale? Do they jump to the end point and say, well, let me do this because I'm going to cure something without talking about how they're going to get to the end. So the end justifies the means in this argument. Or... Do they have some mechanism evaluating whether a person is a person? Is that person based on their ability to reason? Are they productive? Do they have a sense of the future? They're arbitrarily deciding when a person is a person. And how are they doing that? Next slide. What's the cost? Are embryos created and destroyed in the process? Does this commodify? I love that word or instrumentalize anyone's life or body? When does human personhood begin and end, and who decides that? And what are the underlying other presuppositions of the position of the person you're talking to? So those kinds of questions, I think, can allow a Christian to try to apply biblical principles to the answer to these questions once you're having the conversation. If they get to think about it and realize, gee, the cost of this technology might not be where I want to go with it, and you can offer comments to it. Now, there are lots of things we don't know, but learning more about this, I think, can help us. Next slide. In preparation for this, I found two references that were very helpful, and in those references, there's exhaustive lists of relevant references that can be found, and since then... Since I prepared these slides, which is just a couple of weeks ago, um, I've run across two more additional books that I think are going to be really quite valuable. The first one is The Language of Life, DNA, and the Revolution in Personalized Medicine by Dr. Francis Collins. As Dr. Chen talked about two weeks ago, he is a Christian who is a scientist, and he has applied his Christian principles to all the work that he's done and the publications that he's written. This book was published in uh, 2010, I believe, 2009, in that area. And it's an incredibly insightful description of the technology at the time for how all of the new genetic discoveries, of which he was one of the leaders, have been applied. Since he wrote this book, CRISPR came online. So he doesn't even mention CRISPR in 2009, 2010 in his book. He would rewrite it now if he had to. The following book is Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering in the Future of Humanity by Jamie Metzl. Jamie Metzl is not a Christian. Um, however, he is a good writer, and he explains very clearly 
the implications of this genetic technology and what it could mean for the human race. Um, and it was published in April of 2019. So if you want something easy to read, understanding he's not a Christian, but you want to learn something about it, I recommend that book. Now, again, if we have time and questions and answers, I have a lot of other information that I could share, but I'm going to stop so that we have time for the other things. Real quick. Yes, yes, I needed a CRISPR. I actually, uh, the CRISPR technology is fascinating. I was at a conference for youth pastors the other year, and somebody was writing it. He was presenting a paper and some research and how it affects youth ministry. And he was like, I bet none of you have even heard of this. And my hand was the only one in the room because I'm, Herb's son-in-law. But he was presenting questions like, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but the first generation of babies to be born using this technology to modify the genes happened this past year. And he said, what happens, you know, as youth groups and ministries, um, how does this shape conversations about the image of God? What do you do when you have kids that have been enhanced to be better musicians? Do they just get to be the worship leaders, or do you still try to incorporate all the kids? And, and he went through a list of ways that affected youth ministry. I was like, oh, man, if I'm still a youth pastor in 20 years. <laughs> the, um, I have a few questions that people submitted from last week that I wanted to present to our panel um, that uh, I had kind of given them a heads up. Um, and so I'm just going to toss some of these out to you guys, and you can, whoever has a mic or whoever wants to go first. Um, well, this kind of has to do just with uh, what Herb was talking about. Somebody asked the question last week and submitted, is it ethical to use genetics to produce healthy babies? How do you, how do you process that question? <laughs> Okay. Well, I've written out an answer. Um, so if, if you just allow me to, to read it, because it's going to try to cover a lot, of, a lot of scattered thoughts on the subject. Um, and hopefully I will not be burned alive at the stake when I'm done. Um, and you, nobody else is laughing. <laughs> anyway, um, Okay, so in the case of using genetics to produce healthy babies, the current reality is that through pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, physicians routinely test embryos for hundreds of genes to avoid particular diseases or to pick the sex of their future child, according to Robert Glitzman in an opinion piece published on August 16th of this month, which I just found yesterday. Um, when the first child... Well, he is, um, just to give you a background, he's a professor of psychiatry and the director of the master's in bioethics program at Columbia University. He says that since 1978, when the first child, Louise Brown, was born using in vitro fertilization, this and other assisted productive technologies have expanded immensely, creating over a million babies Women can now sell their eggs to prospective parents. And in the U.S., hundreds of donor agencies are soliciting young women to sell their eggs in university newspaper publications. Prospective parents can now buy eggs online using drop-down menus to choose donors with specific hair and eye color, height, graduation, education, hobbies, religion, race, and ethnicity, and more. Though, of course, purchasers can't be certain which traits the future child will, in fact, inherit from the donor, because DNA testing is not that good just yet. But they, can, they know the characteristics of the person who donated the egg, and that's what they're picking in a menu. Laws regarding these assisted reproductive technologies vary from country to country if they exist at all. The U.S. is relatively lax in regulating these technologies. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine has issued guidelines for choosing embryos for sex and social attributes. However, there are no monitoring or enforcement mechanisms to ensure compliance. 
The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology gather certain basic statistics from in vitro fertilization clinics, but the clinics are not required to provide the information. Robert Klitzman, the gentleman I referred to earlier, recommends that governmental agencies should mandate that in vitro fertilization clinics submit patient data so the use of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and other practices can be monitored. He recommends that the CDC should also start asking whether clinics have used any CRISPR-edited embryos. So those are some recommendations at a U.S. societal level that perhaps we should consider expressing support for uh, so we learn more about how this technology is actually being used. Um, Whether or not, getting now to the question, whether or not the use of genetics to produce healthy babies is ethical is a question that is at the center of the normal tension between a desire to cure diseases and ameliorate pain and suffering spoken so eloquently of by Dr. Chen on August 11 in this series and the desire for humanity to place itself at the center of creation instead of God. I suspect each person's motivations will be judged by God as they utilize these powerful technologies. The world's going to use these technologies, and Christians should offer our perspectives to the policy conversations. That's it. (laughs) For now. (laughs) Anybody else want to weigh in on that one? I have another one queued up if uh, let me uh, one of the questions that uh, was also submitted is um, if or when scientists actually clone a human being, will that clone have a soul and uh, maybe maybe rather than answering that definitively yes or no um, i 'd be curious to hear from Todd, Steve, or Bryant since you just tackled that one. Uh, <laughs> How do you, how do you, <laughs> in youth group, I start just telling you, you're the one that's going to answer this. Um, maybe beyond just answering that question definitively, yes or no, because I think all of these questions are huge, and there's a tendency for us to want this, so what am I supposed to think? How do you guys process questions? So maybe the bigger question is, how do you even What's a healthy or God-honoring way to process this kind of question? How do you approach it? How do you, how do you work your way through it, regardless of the answer you come to? Yeah, uh, in regards to that, I, I, the answer is I don't know. Um, but what I would say is, is that um, the common trait for um, all beings that have a soul is that we're made in the image of God. And so if you're made in the image of God, I don't necessarily know that it matters too much the mode of how you came into being. Um, but if you end up as a person made in the image of God, I believe you have a soul. That's how I would answer. Yeah, I mean, just to maybe corroborate that, the verse in Genesis came to mind about God, you know, breathing into Adam, and he became a living being. You know, God is the one who initiates that process, so uh, maybe that's helpful in, in thinking about that issue as well. Um, Steve, kind of along those same lines, uh, I was briefly on the pastor search committee. It was fascinating to me um, how people approach decisions and process information uh, because we had a a wide range of people on the board. He's laughing nervously because he's probably suspicious where I'm going with this because we had some people that it's like uh, some of us are very white. You know, it's emotional, my gut feeling. Um, Steve's kids will tease him about his decision-making matrix. And, and, uh, and I get, here's where I'm going with this. It's a very, you're a very information-driven guy. It, it, very, I mean, it makes sense to me what you do for a living and everything. And faith is so abstract and so different than, than the way your brain is wired. So how do you, when you come to these kinds of decisions, questions, how do you mesh those two worlds? How, how do you use your approach to decision-making in things of faith and things of God? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I think I'm trying to answer. I'm still trying to answer the, the original question. And, uh, I'll, uh, I'll answer with, uh, I kind of agree with Brian uh, on that because I, I tried to write an answer for that. But I think um, it really comes down, if you, if you uh, read the creation story, <clears throat> there is a point, right, where God does stop and create man as we know him, Adam, uh, out of the dust of, of the earth, and then he, what, breathes life into him. He didn't do that with anything else. Mm. It was only with man. So I believe that that I, I would I would step back and say that was the, the start of uh, the human race as as we know it, and that if there's a clone, then that that clone also has the same material which God used to make man. Mm. So I would say that my belief would be yes that that clone would have a soul. I think your other question has to do with how do I deal with information, particularly things that aren't quantifiable. Hmm. I think that's your question, maybe. Yeah. Because, you know, when you have information, you know, just data in general, you can, you can do statistics on it or you can process it, right? And it should follow some rules. Again, we talked about the rules of the universe, whether they're chemistry or, or engineering, you know, the Newtonian physics I mentioned earlier. Of course, there's, there's other physics too, quantum, but... Uh, you know, you can deal with that. It's the unquanti- it's the uh, the qualitative type questions, and that's where I was trying to use that on the on the search committee. I was trying to use a tool where we could we could prioritize really what was important to us. There's you know when you go through and you you list down you know questions for yourself about any decision, right? Are they do they all rank the same uh, level of importance? Do they? You know, does color matter to you more than uh, say functionality? You know, it's that kind of question, and you need you need to process it. So I was using tools that I've learned over the years to try to help the, the committee process what was in their heads, right, okay. and in their hearts as well. So uh, if, I don't have time to go through and show you what I used, <laughs> but uh, if anybody is really curious, uh, I don't mind sharing that in the future. But, yeah, I think uh, I, I do have tools in my toolkit. So. Um. Let's tackle one more question as a panel, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap up, and then people can be free to come up and, and corner these guys a little bit. Um, there were a couple people that asked questions kind of on the variations of, you know, why is it difficult for Christians to deal with some of these topics? Why is it, why do we get into controversy, or why do we handle some of this poorly? And, and I felt like that tied to one of the bigger goals of this summer series, some of you might have heard me say before, statistically, you know, depending on the survey you read, 60 to 80% of young people when they graduate from high school uh, effectively graduate from the faith. They leave the faith. And um, when you dig down farther into it, the number one reason that these young people who leave the faith give for leaving the faith is science and faith and just being confronted. You know, they go to college, they're confronted with something that doesn't reconcile with what they were taught. And, uh, and so they feel forced to choose between one or the other. And for me, um, I think there's a temptation to look at that and go, okay, that's a youth ministry thing. But for me, I think it's a, a broader Christianity thing, right? That however it is that the church as a whole in America interacts with some of these topics, it's doing so in a way that's ineffective, right? Because we come across as judgmental. Why are we fighting with each other? And why are we producing generations of young people that because of the way we've presented it, they're leaving the faith. So how can we be interacting with it better? So that was a long-winded way to say, in your guys' opinion, um, how can the church more appropriately handle discussions around faith and science in a way that's more God-honoring, in a way that builds the kingdom rather than seeing people leaving the kingdom? I can start off with that. Yeah, so... um, when you say that, what I think of is, is the fact that um, acknowledging that we don't know everything. I think oftentimes we believe that we should um, have the answer to every question um, locked down solid. But the problem with that is that you only have to look at a brief history of humanity to see that over time, that's never been the case. And there's never been a society um, or a group of Christians that have had the answer for everything. And, and within time, th- those ideas change. They amend as you, as you learn more, as you see more, as you have more understanding. So I think a part of it is just accepting the fact that, yes, um, you know, you look back in time, 200 years ago, people worshipped very different than we do now. 
look 400 years earlier than that. People worship very different than we do now. Um, in 300 years, people will worship God differently than we are right now, and that's all okay. And being okay with the fact that that's going to be okay. So um, I think some of it, too, is, is an over-resistance to change. Um, uh, we want to hold on to what we believe is um, 100% right now. And, um, and so a resistance to that, to go back to the illustration I gave about um, Galileo, obviously the Catholic Church now believes that the earth is not the center, the, the earth is not the center of the universe. Um, but there was a long walk back of them having to, over the years and throughout the centuries, like walk back that. And um, now they've gone from almost you know, killing Galileo to giving him a commendation for it, right? So they're, they're, we just need to be more accepting and more um, uh, realizing that we don't know everything. Yeah. I was just going to comment. I, um, you know, Steve had mentioned about, like, the church that you grew up in and, and all of us who have been Christians from the time we were children and, and uh, that, those households. And I, we weren't encouraged to ask questions. And when we did, we got no answers. It was, it was it's just the way it is. Um, and so I just want to commend this church, this staff, this, the youth group, it's whether whether we are children or whether we're grown and still trying to mature in our faith. This church, I think, especially in the more recent, has really encouraged coming forward with questions like this, and you're really trying to tackle them. So I just want to, you know, kudos to all of you. Thank you. Uh, just um, kind of came into my head, um, love, you know, and a lot of these issues, there's really people way smarter than me on both sides. And, you know, I think in interacting, uh, with folks who may share a different view, a, a really important characteristic of that is to do so in love and, you know, develop a relationship and, you know, perhaps say, okay, let's, let's be agreeable as we disagree and not, you know, follow the, the way our culture is often going and, you know, shooting the other the other person down. So, yeah, I, I'll, I'll just second that. Thank you to the church. I wish I was a part of it this summer or could have been uh, more so about, you know, having this forum and, um, and raising some of these issues. As a part of this question, I, I kind of warned Steve and Herb ahead of time. I might single them out. They both have adult children um, who grew up in households that love science and love God and now have adult children who love science, love God, what did those conversations look like in your household in a small scale do you think that helped create some of that? Well, I think, you know, we, we, never, we never tried to, uh, uh, you know, set science off to the side and set faith off to the side. That was never part of, of our family conversations. It was trying to, trying to meld the fact that God is the God of science, you know, and and as Brian said, I think fundamentally, as you, if, as you teach your children, you need to make sure you're always teaching that God is a very personal God. He is a God of love. He, he wants you to interact with him. And that's all very supernatural, too. That's beyond science, right? When, when you sit down and you pray, that's not an equation, right? That's an interaction with the holy God of the universe. I mean, you need to understand that you're, you believe in the supernatural. Everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, believes in the supernatural. Do you not? You have to. <laughs> so we always, uh, we never, and I never shied away from questions that came up, you know, if they were creation or anything else. I mean, you, you have to address it. it it's, uh, as Susan mentioned, it, it, saying nothing is an answer, and it's not the right answer. You need to engage. Right, and even if you don't know, you need to say, "I don't really know," but you know, why don't we work on that? So, anyway, I've been very blessed. God's blessed us and our family, so I, I give Him all the credit. So, so I didn't prepare a written answer for that question. <laughs> um, basically, I, if, as I think about trying to answer it, and, and my daughter's right out there, so um, I, I think it was primarily, I hope, by example. Um, she knew that I was very active as a scientist my whole career, um, from the, virtually from the time I was a freshman in high school. Um, and um, 
and we also were very active um, Christians. So I'm hoping that somehow through example <laughs> things got through, that there wasn't a conflict between science and faith um, just by the way we were living. Um, I don't remember, maybe she does, I don't remember specific examples where we talked about it, um, where there were issues, but, but she knew darn well what I was, and she knew what our family stood for. So. Well, let me uh, close us a prayer, and then if you want to co- corner these guys, uh, you got a little bit of time before the next hour starts, but let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for each of these panel members being willing to come out and get up in front of everyone and, and tackle some questions and share some thoughts. And God, we thank you for blessing us with uh, their words today. God, we ask that you'd help us as a church to grow in our ability to, to uh, honor you and your kingdom in this arena. In your name. Amen. Can we give a big thank you to each of our panelists?